and I try and explain this to our apprentices, but it's to give the consumer the confidence to cook it. Like we can sell them the best pork chop. If you don't cook it right, it's not going to turn out right. So it's just about giving that consumer the confidence to say, hey, this is how, this is the best way to do it. This is why I like it. How do you like it? This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Many people agree that bacon possesses one of the most alluring aromas and eating experiences on the planet, but how do you make the world's best? For Luke Jensen at Meat Cellar in Toowoomba, Queensland, it's all about decades on the tools and a collaborative work environment. Luke, how are you? Very well. Tending, how are you? I'm good. It's great to get you on the show. What's it feel like producing the world's best bacon? Oh, it was so, it was surreal. Like, how, we literally just sent it, our products over to say right well this is this will be the benchmark for years to come on how we can improve and that's what we're always looking to do with these competitions is how can we improve the products for the consumers and when we come back with the win it was like wow <laughs> we're pretty good <laughs> tell us a little bit about the competition and what the judges sort of said about your bacon well so the competition it came out um, it was like i think it's about 8 or 9 months prior to the actual judging and we had to send it over to London. So to get all that sort of paperwork and all that involved um, and it really, we literally just received an email. I had a look through it and thought, yep, rightio, we'll give this a go. Like what have we got to lose? And just the array of judges that they had, like I think they had over 40, 40 judges that, you know, I mean, they looked at, so they had producers there that looked at the, the type of pork or beef or whatever species you had um, and then they had chefs on how it cooked and then they had like German master butchers on how it was cured and the process of it all, which was really great and to come away with the win was absolutely fantastic. Tell us a little bit about your bacon. What what makes it so special? <laughs> well, I'm, and like people ask me that all the time and I'm, I'm there's not really one thing that makes it special. Like, yes, we ha we have a great relationship with our local um, piggery, um, and they've been, they're like I think they're a fourth or fifth generation pig farmers. So you know, I mean, they've got their craft down down to the like nth degree of how they do things, and and like that's and when you've got a starting point like that, it makes our job. A hell of a lot easier um and then we literally and like because i work with a master butcher um down in sydney on how to improve our products um and i said to him i said look because he was offering all these other things that and i thought i, st I just said to him i said i just want to keep it as natural and as because he didn't want us to use honey which we use to take the harshness out of the, like the salt harshness um, and he said, we'll just use glucose. And I said, well, Horsh, I don't want to use that. I want to use natural local products because that way you get the flavour of the region. Um, and I, th I think that's like the real difference is our honey changes throughout the year um, and like our pork is very similar, like very consistent throughout the year, but it's all like the, our pig farm, it has its own 
feed program, so it controls everything, and which is all grown around our region, which I think that's what they do wonderfully in Europe and overseas is they've got those 100, 200-year processes and breeds, which just makes their small goods and so much better than everyone else in the world except for us with our bacon. I want to get into uh, hams and particularly Christmas hams a bit later on in the show, but um, you mentioned uh, the local farmer. Tell us a little bit about the way your butchery works and the relationship you have with the local pig farmers. Um, so, so basically, we like every week we just have a standing order with our pigs. They get sent away from their farm, which is 50 kilometres from our shop. Um, unfortunately, because of the size of them, they have to send them a bit further to an abattoir that can handle that processing, which is a shame, but it is what it is. Like that, that the world of abattoirs are a very difficult world. Um, so yeah, and then we just get re-receive them every Wednesday, fresh whole carcasses. Um, we were trying cart and pork at one stage, but it just doesn't have have the same consistency and I suppose integrity that a whole whole pig carcass um, has. And like the the girls, like it's all like the generation now, I think, which is a fourth generation coming through. They only had daughters, so it's all these daughters, and they're doing a wonderful, like just new ideas, um, and they're like keen to learn and get feedback from the butchers and the processors on right. Well, what's this doing? It was it doing in this season, and like totally open minded on on the feedback that you give them, be it good, bad, ugly, whatever. They always try and improve their product. What are you looking for from those pigs as they come through the door for all the various things that you utilise the pig for? So what we like in our shop is a nice big eye of the loin um, and that's what people seem like customers now, they like to see that nice big bit of meat and with uh, like a nice coverage of fat but not excessive fat and that's what our producers do really well is they've worked their craft um and even down to the pack where the belly is nearly the same every single week and it's just just fantastic in the way in which they do it well uh i want to explore sort of what you're doing further along in the in the show but um take us back to when you were young where did you grow up and what sort of role did food play for you so I grew up on a little hobby farm um, in a town called Southbrook, actually. Um, and like mum and dad, dad worked on the council. Mum was working in, uh, she worked in the DPI for a little bit. She was also, she just did odd end jobs. Um, and dad had finished work, at, be home at four o'clock and you'd run around, you'd milk the cows, you'd feed the pigs, feed the chooks, do all that sort of jazz. And... Dad always wanted to be self-sufficient, so we always had the home butcher come. And, like, butchering wasn't really on my radar as a kid, not even until I finished school, actually. Um, So we always sort of ate our own – what we produced, we ate. Because Dad, like, I'm one of four kids, so it was – single like single household income like yeah it was mum and dad did it tough was what they told us but we didn't know that um and like food was like every night we had meat and veg and you just always hung out for 
Sunday night when it was just baked beans. So food didn't really play a big role in my early life. It wasn't until probably I'd been butchering for eight to ten years and I actually moved to Toowoomba where I started to, like this is what you, I got exposed to other other people and and processes and I thought well this is a and like what really intrigued me about pork and curing of it is the science behind it like what you can do to a piece of meat to turn it into this and the process and the chemistry that needs to go through it I just found that fascinating um and then further on down the path when after we bought the business it was like right well we need to what are what are customers and consumers looking consumers looking for um and that's when i really went on the hunt um and i reached out to anthony parish from victor churchill and that was sort of that that food journey of well this is what you can actually do in a butcher shop um and that led me down the road like i'm a massive fan of lennox hastings like the things that he does with food and fire like nowhere like my wife and kids hate me cooking but i just like to try that sort of stuff and go right well what can and it may seem a bit airy fairy but like you mean like fire and pork fat and all that sort of stuff it just gives you something totally different um in flavor wise and and like every time it's different which it was which is what i like well, it doesn't sound airy fairy at all to me. I'm I'm way down that path with you, mate. Um, <laughs> um, so where did you start? Sort of tell us about your road into butchery. Why did you head into it, and what were those first sort of eight years before that revelation? What was it like for you? So, went to school in Pittsworth. Um, all my friends, because we lived out of town, we never really we always caught the bus home, and then we never had a way of getting in because mum and dad were working and. So then all my friends had jobs. So I ended up getting a job in a cafe, hated it, and then my other mate, he was quitting his job in the butcher shop. So I went, yep, I'll go and the typical go clean up and become the apprentice. Um, so my first day was actually Australia Day, so I got a public holiday for my, for my first day on the job, which I thought, this is great. Um, yeah, so then I just cracked on, and I just loved the hustle and bustle, and there was always something to do. And like, so I just went through that. I got my apprenticeship done, which I was keen to get done. And then it was sort of, well, right, what else is there? And I sort of plateaued for, oh, two or three years. And I thought, well, there's got to be more out there. Um, and that's when I made that jump to to manage a shop in Tumble, which I ended up buying. Um, and then once we bought the shop, because we just wanted generational change. Like I didn't want my boys to struggle to buy a house or, you know what I mean, it was just to build the wealth for my generations to come. And like, and that was sort of my, and it just opened my world up significantly on what is possible within food, within business. Um, and like, it's surprising what you can do when you just sell a few pigs a week. Like, it really has been fantastic industry for us. Anthony Paharich's influence on the food scene is um, obvious to many that are in it, but you mentioned the interactions that you've had with him. Do you have any stories of the impacts or moments with him that sort of changed your thinking? 
it was actually when we first visited his shop and he wasn't there, which was unfortunate, but we met his, oh, I forget what he, he was a, like the maitre d' that he, his name was Luke too and he come in and he was, they were so welcoming. They're like, hey, come out the back, have a look. This is how we do this. This is what we do here. What do you do up there? This is why we do this. Go down to uh, the seafood fish markets where Vicks Meats is. Um, like it was more that because prior to that, butchering was like, well, these are my secrets. I'm not going to tell you. These are my secrets. Like it was very secretive whereas when we went down to victor churchill it was like hey this is the world this is what you can do keep in touch and like i've kept in touch with luke for oh shivers we went down there six or so years ago seven years ago and we just keep in touch all the time on how hiring staff and like it has been phenomenal i've listened to anthony's podcast which is like great into insight on how else to think about business and meat and food and everything. It's like, and that's probably the biggest influence he's had on me. Meat Seller is a, a stunning butcher. Tell us a bit about that transformation and, and sort of, you know, the setup and what you've set up there. So that, what you see is all my wife, Michelle. She has this uncanny ability to see something before it's actually done. I don't have that. Um, so she did all that and we wanted to make the customer feel welcome and an ease to come into our shops because like a lot of butcher shops, they were cold, like they had all these dark colours and you just thought like whereas Michelle's got these nice light colours, we actually got a branding lady to come up with our brand um, and like there's a whole branding book and like really worth the money that you had to, to pay to get that done but it's just we've just seen phenomenal results ever since changing like making it into the meat cellar um people feel welcome it's bright it's clean and it really showcases the meat that you put out on display take us through the process you mentioned how you get whole pigs in um can you break down a whole pig for us and sort of you know share with us where the different elements go to within your business yeah so with our business we literally use six cuts so we've got the legs which we like we use them for throughout the year they're boneless hands um and during christmas we turn them into the to the bone in hands um belly you got the belly um which we can't keep up with because that's the new craze and which is which is fantastic um and then we do, like, we're very traditional. We've got the loin chops. Um, but out of that non-fillet end of the loin, we actually do steaks and cutlets, which are they're becoming a lot a lot more popular. And, like, you can do a lot of things. Like, we do a nice Canadian maple pork steak, um, a herb chilli garlic pork cutlet. Um, so, And there's that, like, a lot of different um, – and that's the beauty of pet pork too. There's – it's such a versatile cut. Nothing goes to waste and you can make hundreds and hundreds of product, products out of it. Um, and then you have your shoulders. Like we, got, we do a lot of shoulder chops, um, but we also were seeing that, that move into people trying that smoking stuff and slow cook stuff. It sort of dies off around Christmas time for us, whereas in wintertime, oh, 
hell for leather. They they love their slow cooked collars and smoked Boston butts and all that sort of stuff. Tell us a little bit about sausages and uh, small goods as well. Do you have a program for that in regards to pork? Yeah, so we we actually do a very very nice plain pork sausage, um, but and like we use Australian pork um, trademark a lot. So there's a few recipes in there, but we and that's what and that's the beauty of once again about pork. Such a versatile fat to meat ratio is perfect for making sausages, and the fat in sausages is perfect. Um, so we've got a like a few varieties. We do a, a pork cheddar and mustard sausage. We do a pork honey and apple sausage. But that's very popular, um, and we just sort of play around. And that's a, we can play around with pork. Um, small goods, yeah, we do a lot of small. Oh, we don't do a lot, but we what we do we can't really keep up with. So we do your traditional cheese cabanas, plain cabanas, your little beer, twiggy sticks. Um, we do a lot of salamis, pepperonis, ham, bacon, speck, all that sort of jazz. So, yeah, we've it keeps us busy. What's, do you have any favourites in those small goods out of the sort of salamis, the pepperonis, that sort of thing? And um, tell us a bit about the process of one of them. Oh, look, I used to not like hot stuff like hot stuff for me would be a mold like a low-grade sweet chili sauce but i'm actually warming really warming to our pepperoni um and the bloke that makes it tom um like he's just this magician with that sort of stuff it's just like how did you get that those those six products to turn into that so we basically get um Pork fat, pork, lean pork, and some beef, and mix it in with these magical herbs and spices, and then we just let them hang. So run them out of the filler, and we let them hang for two or three days just for that curing process to work, to do what it needs to do. And that's what else I love is, like like I said earlier, is the chemistry, like what those natural salts um, spices and everything does to that to that plain bit of fat like what chili will do to beef is totally different to what chili will do to pork and that's what we've really refined on how we mix them how we hang them how we cook them how we cool them and like basically how the end product that that the consumer gets and sometimes I feel that that's not appreciated through the customer and that's what I'd like to get more out that this is actually the process of how this pig turned into this salami or how this pig turned into this ham. It just doesn't miraculously turn up on the shelf. <laughs> You've credited uh, quite a few other people for various things um, so far. But tell us about your work environment and the collaborative nature of it and is it quite different to the butchers you cut your teeth in? Yeah, very much, very much. It was, and getting into business, that's what I found out very quickly, that the older butchers thought the younger butchers, you had to earn your right to be a butcher, and which after getting into business, I actually hated because no one would work together. The young blokes didn't really want to turn up. Um, and, like, it took us four or five years being like it's only been in the last two or three years that we've really started to hum along with hey everyone's on the same because we used to like every other shop would have a manager 
But every time I put put a goal, gave that person the label of a manager, it just went to their head and they thought they were above everyone else and it actually made it worse. So now we just have, we actually don't label anyone. Like it's literally just, hey, this is, jo- guys, this is your job to do and we all need to get it done. This is the goal for today. We all need to work together to get that goal done. What sort of impact has that had on the morale and the environment? Massive. Like some people didn't like it and they've left, Like, and you've got your natural selection, but it's helped the morale. We've got less sick days. Um, People, like everyone wanted holidays around Christmas, um, but they're like, oh, no, such and such got in for, like very accommodating with everybody, willing to help it. Like some people start 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, and if someone needs to go, like, because we got a few family, few workers that have young families, and like, if one kid gets sick, another one will go right. That's all right. I'll cover your shift. You go look after, go look after your son. And that's and that's the beauty of, and that's what we want. Like when Michelle and I got into business, it wasn't about, hey, let's become billionaires. It was how can we help other people become wealthy with us. Wow. You mentioned that during the year you do um, boneless hams and then when it comes into Christmas, the bone-in hams feature heavily. Did, are, are they created differently? Can you tell us a bit about that and sort of what's involved in making a ham? So very similar process um, in the way of curing um, and this is what we've sort of refined with um, the master German master butcher that down in Sydney um, he's just given me a few more techniques to really optimize the end product, plus make it easier on the on the or through the process. So basically, the boneless hams we just bone out a leg of pork, trim out all the glands, all the fat, all the different sinews, um, and then it gets put through our injector. So everything's injected uh, with a brine. Um, and then boneless hams, we actually tumble them for 12 hours. So that's under a vacuum to bring out the mice and then the other proteins that will help the ham stick and stay together. So all natural and just the natural process. Um, and then it's just put in a net um, and cooked in the oven where the boneless bone-in ham, same process, we just don't take the bone out um, and it just soaks instead of going in the tumbler it'll just soak in the brine for three to four days. And then it's um, smoked, cooked and smoked over about 15 to 18 hours, depending on the size of size of the leg. Tell us a little bit about that Christmas ham. Um, what's important in a Christmas ham and what sort of side of the fence are you on in regards to eating, just eating it straight up or uh, roast baking it? Oh, I... In, the, in regards to roasting or eating it straight up, I really think it depends on the weather. Like, if it's a stinking hot day, there's no way I'm cooking a ham. <laughs> no way. So, it, like, if I think I think a lot of people do it, like, if there's – you've got family around, and it is a great centrepiece. Like, if you get a well – nice-looking ham, well-baked, glaze, the smell of a – reheat like a cooked ham on the barbecue or over fire and coals is just next level and i think that 
but I wouldn't be doing it for people un- under 10 people. Like it's, there's a lot of effort that needs to go invo- in, involved in doing that. Um, so I'm either way. Like having it hot, nothing will beat it. Um, but having it cold, like it's just as good. Just as good. What's what's the Christmas period of time like for you these days? Um, obviously, hams are important, but what's it like managing that period of time for you? Oh, and in and I was I was looking back. I've been doing it for twenty odd years now. And I think, well, I'm not that old, am I? Um, <laughs> but like, it has changed significantly. Like when I started doing it out at Ashton's Butchery in Pittsworth. People would be having orders in at the beginning of November, sort of end of October, ordering ham, and you knew exactly how many you needed to cook, minimal wastage, whereas now it's people who just go, right, well, come in Christmas Eve, where's your ham type thing. It's just this pick and grab and go type pro- So that's really changed for us. So we try and promote, hey, get your orders in early, but then we do have some left over and, like, November's big for us. So we like to do most of our stuff in November so we're all ready to go for the December period and that way we've got two or three weeks up our sleeve if there's an influx of orders or something happens um, in the way of because I know now the big supermarkets, they sort of go, right, well, this is our water, we've run out. And I know that's where another couple of shops in town don't have the facilities to cook their own ham and have to order them in and they had to have orders in by the start of October or something. So I just don't know how you predict predict so far in front. Um, so we just like to leave ourselves a couple of weeks leeway and that's where it's also good having that relationship with the farmer because you can say, hey, Emily, hey, Catherine, I'm going to need extra pigs this week because we need this many hams or like, and it's literally phone call. Yep. And they're on the truck for your next week's order. Uh, Pork consumption and an understanding of the cookery of pork has changed exponentially in the last sort of 15, 20 years. Um, how, How have you seen that change? And is is it important for you to understand cooking techniques as well in your role? Yeah. Yeah. It is like for, and it's to give, and I try and explain this to our apprentices, but it's to give the consumer the confidence to cook it. Like we can sell them the best pork chop, the best Wagyu rib fillet that would go to Japan. If you don't cook it right, it's not going to turn out right. So it's just about giving that consumer the confidence to say, hey, this is how, this is the best way to do it. And it is. It is all experimental. If nobody tried anything, we'd still be eating um, haggis and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know what I mean? So, and that's and that's and we just go right. Well, this is the best. This is the way I like it. How do you like it? And then you sort of meet. And that's the beauty of it too. Like you can have that relationship with the customer and say, "Hey, this is how I cook it, but my wife likes it this way." Like classic example is we do a pork schnitzel in a parmesan uh parmesan and parsley crumb and my mother-in-law like lovely lady but very fussy on a food and i just used to put them schnitzel straight in the oven and 
she was up one day and I'd cooked these schnitzels and she was looking at me and half gagging. I'm thinking, is everything all right, Jan? She goes, Luke, your crumbs aren't cooked. I said, what? So then she, next time, because she stayed a couple of days, so I got another lot and she said, well, show me how to do it. She said, you need to pan, shallow fry it first to brown your crumbs and then you put it in the oven. And ever since that day, like she was totally right. Like the crumb, if you put it in the oven, it comes out soggy and terrible. Whereas you can brown the crumbs, you've got this beautiful crunchy crumb layer with this moist, soft inside. And it's like, and it's just those little things like that, that I think are fantastic. What sort of impact has that global recognition had for your team with the bacon? Oh, massive. Like, it has, like, and I can't explain how, what an impact it's had on our business, our team, the morale, the, just the team environment of going, hey, we've actually, we actually do, do a really good job. Um, we've had people from all over Australia ringing to try and get our bacon, but unfortunately, to send a kilo of bacon to Melbourne costs about $200 and not really worth it. So we're sort of looking for ways to get it distributed nationwide. And like even when we won Best Ham in Australia a few years ago, it was the same thing. We had people ringing from Perth saying, hey, how can I get your ham for Christmas? And well, it's going to cost you a fortune to get it unless you fly over here, pick it up and take it back. It's just trying to find that national distributor to to get it everywhere and i totally understand that it's not viable at this stage but we're working on it well uh you've built an amazing career an incredible business and made such a big impact but what do you love about what you do i love the busyness like that you constantly got something like there's never nothing to do like and that's what i tell all employees and like even our older guys and like I've got a bloke who's 10 years younger than me and he knows more than what I know. Like and you're always learning off someone else. There's always something like we've got a lot of ex-meat um, inspectors that come in and you say, hey, come around here, look at this. And they go, oh, yeah, you need to do this with this, that's that. Um, so it's that sort of – and then also the collaboration with the con- customer and consumer. Like you get a insight into what they do at home. Like, and not too many professions get to do, like, get to sit at their dinner table. Like, basically, I know what Mrs. Jones is going to be eat, eating sometime this week, which I find absolutely phenomenal. And also, when they come back and say, hey, I cooked it your way, I actually really like it that way, or I cooked it, like, just getting that feedback and that, hey, thanks very much for that. Um, and like a lot of people, <laughs> the funny one I find is when people have parties, they always seem to buy way too much. Like you go, well, hold on, you're not fattening them. We're only got to feed them. So kids don't eat four sausages. They only need two at max. So then you sort of do that and their budget comes from $200 down to 100 or 120. And they, they like, and that's just, and that's building the trust with the customer as well. Well, Luke, you're an absolute inspiration and it's an honour to have you on The Crackling today to hear just a part of your story. Um, Please keep in touch and we'll catch up again soon. Yeah, will do. Thank you very much. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. 
Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.